a dream that I have is to create a guiding school for women or a guiding school for everyone that is free for women, indigenous and minorities. So others can pay for it, <laughs> but then uh, people that come from this background will have access for free. Hello and welcome to Blue Sky Thinking, a mind-expanding podcast from Globe Trender that explores the bold ideas that are pushing our boundaries and broadening our horizons. I am your host, travel journalist and entrepreneur, Jenny Southern, and every episode I will be going on a conversational journey with the innovators and visionaries who are shaping the future of travel. My guest today is Zina Benchek, Managing Director EMEA for Intrepid Travel, which is an Australian-based company that sells small group adventure trips to countries all over the world. Before we start this chat, I just want to say that this week's episode of Blue Sky Thinking is sponsored by Kayak. Kayak is a travel search engine that allows you to compare prices for flights, hotels and car hire, meaning you don't have to jump around from one website to another making test bookings like I used to do. There are a lot of great features on Kayak for frequent travellers like you and I, so I just want to take a few moments to tell you about some of my favourites. If you're looking at a variety of flights to a certain destination and you'll know roughly when you'll travel but it's not locked in, there's an option to compare multiple departure and return dates. This will show you if it's cheaper or maybe more convenient to fly a day or two earlier or a couple of days later. You can also filter your flight search. For me, that's usually direct flights only if I can. I like to avoid too much of an early start or a very late arrival, so I adjust the takeoff and landing time. I've been researching a family holiday to Crete recently and these features have been really useful because my daughter is young and we don't like to fly at awkward times of the day, but we also need to keep costs down. Finally, once you have the options in front of you, you can compare flight prices from numerous online travel agents as well as the airlines themselves. So for your next trip, start your search on Kayak. Known for being a leader in responsible tourism, Intrepid has not only been carbon neutral since 2010, but is now the world's largest travel company to have earned a B Corps certification for Force for Good Business. A key driving force behind Intrepid's mission to create positive change, Zena has paid special attention to using the company's global reach to generate economic opportunities for women. For example, in her home country of Morocco, she's lobbied the government to provide more tour guide licences to women in a bid to combat a female unemployment rate of 75%. This year, Intrepid Travel has launched a global series of more than 100 experiences with Indigenous and First Nations communities, and we'll learn more about that in this episode. Welcome to Blue Sky Thinking, Zena. Thank you so much for having me, Jenny. You were born in Marrakesh and educated in France and the UK. You have also spent time living in Canada. Tell us a bit about your background and this combination of cultural influences you experienced in the first portion of your life. Yeah, it's not the, the usual path for Moroccan women, uh, indeed, to have travelled uh, extensively when I was younger. I'm from a family of globetrotters, so my parents, when they met in Morocco, they were just students and they decided to uh, leave the country to actually start exploring the world. So they went to France to study. First, they had my older sister on the way and then they moved to London, actually, where they lived for a couple of years with her. 
Um, they also lived a small part of their life in Switzerland. And then um, I was born with my other sister before uh, they decided to, I uh, was born in Morocco before they decided to then move to Canada for um, a few years where I spent my childhood. So I was really um, already uh, very, at a very young age, uh, exposed to different culture, different uh, countries. Uh, so as soon as I got uh, my high school diploma at 17 years old, I decided to leave Morocco and move um, to France uh, and in the UK to uh, study and work. When I started my career, I was uh, working in a very boring industry, I must say. I was a finance auditor for, for a few years and I used to travel a lot as a finance auditor, but uh, never really found the purpose in what I was doing. And so um, this background, uh, these years that I spent traveling around the world with my family and then by myself really made me uh, feel that I wanted to work in, in an, you know, an environment that was very diverse, where I could meet different cultures, where I could travel around the world. Um, so that's how really I found myself working for Intrepid and finding this perfect job that was kind of combining finance and travel. And where are you living now? Well, now I live in Casablanca. When I started in 2010 uh, working for Intrepid, I was in France, in Paris, uh, working as a finance auditor, moved to Morocco, Marrakech, where Intrepid was setting up a new office, a new startup made of around 10 people. I then left Morocco in 2019. Um, it was a, a team of 70, so just to show the scale of growth that we've been through, and I moved to London. And so I spent uh, two and a half years working in London um, for Intrepid. That, that's, that's when I became managing director, looking after the UK uh, sales and marketing um, uh, office. Um, and then very recently moved into a bit bigger job, which is, uh, as you said, managing director EMEA. Um, and I have the comfort to work from home uh, in Casablanca now, my new my new home where, where I live and, and, and manage the region from looking after the different offices around the EMEA from Casablanca. Tell us a bit more about your upbringing and the travel that you've done with your parents. How has this affected you both personally and professionally? I guess it has really opened my mind. Um, and I, I'm a big believer that travel opens people's minds. So it opens your mind to be more tolerant, to be more accepting of different people, different cultures, different religions. It helps a lot. I mean, travel in general, it helped me a lot. It also helps you with your, your self-confidence. You know, I'm, I'm not worried about moving. I'm not worrying about going to a new place to talk to people, to meet new people. Um, I had no problem to make the decision to move to London from Marrakesh. I had a very comfortable life in Marrakesh. At that time, I had my two kids already at a young age. Um, but I, I was the one driving my husband and, and the family to actually make that move. And to me, it was fine. It was just move find an apartment, settle and, and start a new, uh, a new you know, part of our life. Because of this experience I had when I was younger, I can start over anytime, if that makes sense. Like it gives a lot of confidence in, in the unknown, if that makes sense. That does make sense, definitely. It sounds like you've had quite a nomadic life in many ways. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I quite like that, actually. And, and what did you learn about money growing up? And what have you discovered since? I think I always thought that money was an output of, uh, you know, uh, work or whatever we do. It's not a purpose. It's very important. It enables you to do what you want, to, you know, achieve your dreams, to travel, to buy a house if you want to buy a house or whatever you, you want to do. But I don't look at money as something like I need to collect as many money as I'm, you know, it's more about, I don't want to think about money. I want to have enough of it so I can do whatever I like. But it's not necessarily my purpose in life. Otherwise, I'll be, you know, still in finance and uh, <laughs> kept my previous job. Not, you know, I wouldn't move to travel. I, I'm telling you, money, money in finance is is really good. But um, no, I made that call because I think purpose is more important for me in general. You know, is is not the goal or the purpose. It's just the enabler. 
And tell us about one of your most formative travel experiences. Well, it's hard to choose one because um, since I work for Intrepid, I've been traveling quite extensively. I've been to many continents and countries and done a lot of Intrepid trips. We have uh, the chance to do one free trip every year when we work for Intrepid. The longer your time with the company has been, the more trips you can access to. So that's pretty cool. I can go anywhere. Uh, so I've, I think I'd say, and I know it might sound, um, you know, I don't know if it's obvious, but I, di I did a trip in Morocco, actually, that I had no idea I could do. It was back in 2018. I hosted one of our first uh, women expeditions, which was a, a, a range of product that we've launched back in 2018 to um, support, to create a form of product or travel product that can support women, uh, both sides. So women in the supply chain, women guides, women hosts, uh, women cooks, you know, the, the, the tour is built. So it is actually empowering women at all the touch points of building a trip, but also empowering women customers. Now, in this case, I was a, a customer because I went on that trip to trial it with a group of, 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 of women. And I was, um, I was in this part of Morocco called Ait uh, Boudrarar, which is a village uh, that is, you know, in the middle of nowhere. I'll be honest with you, I've never been before <laughs> that trip. I came back afterwards, but really, really remote village in the High Atlas Mountain, in a lesser area of the High Atlas Mountain, actually. So um, I was led by uh, the first female mountain guide of the country called Hafida. She's a 55-year-old woman who has been doing this job for the past 30 years, and she she's, she's a legend in the country. Um, and she took us in those... Um, she took us trekking in those mountains, a very remote area. We had to walk four or five hours to get to a place where we, we met with real nomads. And it was this family of nomads that was led by women. The, the husband sadly passed. So it was just the women and the sisters and some and a lot of kids, many, many kids. And we spent time with them, had lunch with them, learned about their lifestyle, learned about um, you know, nomadic lifestyle in Morocco. You, you mentioned nomadic, that's real. Um, it was really, really interesting to see how they're moving seasons based on where they can find the best uh, weather condition for their animals. And, you know, they just live with nothing and they're very happy with it. And it's uh, it's incredible. There's no internet connection. I remember one of the young girl, I think an eight-year-old girl took my phone and started to look at how, like, what is this thing? And, and I was thinking, even if I give it to her as a present, she couldn't even charge it because there was no electricity there. So um, it was quite, quite formative, quite, uh, you know, at some um, extent shocking for me to, to see my own country, women like me that were actually not really like me because they have a different path, different uh, background, not the chance that I had to be educated. I, I, I was sad to see these kids that were not going to school because there's no school in this area. And they were talking about one project that was the only one that could potentially happen was to create a nomadic school that could actually take school to them. And I was really interested in why well, I want to make that happen. How do we make that happen? Because it was, it was very, um, very sad in a way. But in the meantime, seeing them happy with their very simple lifestyle was also reassuring that uh, our lifestyle is not necessarily the only one and the, the best one as well. That's a, uh, an intrepid trip that people can book themselves, is it? Absolutely. Yeah, it's a trip that we built uh, afterwards. So that was the first uh, version of it that was not still online at that time. But we went to research it and, you know, experienced homestay in local women's places where we literally sleep in their living room that are made uh, of like a few mattresses and very simplistic way of living and, you know, cooking bread and eating with them and singing and dancing and um, all of that done in a group of only women customer with only women hosts everywhere. It was really, really good. Culturally, we learned so much. They're open to us. They talk about their lives. They talk about their, their challenges. 
uh, one of the women local guide, as we say, like the, 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 the kind of women who outside of the trekking guide, the woman who just takes us around, who knows the area better than, than anyone was telling us how she feels empowered when she do this trip, because she, she earns her own money for the first time in her life. And she's like above 50 year old, never worked for money, worked all her life very hard, but never for, for an income. And that really made her so happy. And she was so happy to see this group of tourists coming afterwards. Um, so yeah, it is a trip that is now bookable. It's actually one of the most successful trip, uh, trip range we have created in the years for, for Intrepid, um, since then. Yeah, that's incredible. The access that you can provide to travellers um, and the opportunities, obviously, that you can offer to local people, particularly women. Um, and I want to talk more about that later in this episode. But I also want to ask you about a travel experience you mentioned to me over dinner the other week. And you were telling me about a trip that you did to the United States when you were a teenager. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that adventure? <laughs> Yeah, sure. As I said, I mean, when I returned to Morocco after living overseas with my parents and family, especially after Canada was the last trip overseas, um, we, we were not really traveling during summer or holidays. Like now we see, you know, our kids are expecting something to, to happen every half term, you know, they, they're expecting to jump on a plane and leave somewhere and go somewhere. And at that time I spent a good 10 years without going overseas. So after living in Canada and before moving to France to study, so uh, my parents at 16 year old uh, gave us the opportunity, my sister and I, to go to Los Angeles, where my uncle uh, lives still now. Um, and he was going to take care of us. He's got a house there and, you know, family, cousins are living there. Um, and so we flew together with my sister alone, um, landed there in the beginning of August and spent one month in um, the West Coast. So from Los Angeles to San Francisco to Las Vegas, actually, we went on a road trip from Los Angeles to Las Vegas, where I stayed in a very fancy five star hotel. I think it was the Palladium. I remember well, a very nice hotel in in at the time in um, in uh, Las Vegas, and really had this amazing American experience. Very cliche in a way, but you know, big malls, big pizza slices, lots of <laughs> cokes and and bad food. But it was uh, it was incredible. I actually had a you know some money pocket for the first time of my life and could uh, buy stuff uh, as I wish. And you know, yeah, it was it was a great it was a great experience. I, I loved it. And as I said earlier, I, I never really worried about traveling because uh, even taking the plane at 16 years old alone with my sister wasn't a new thing. I've done it at five year old going back from Canada alone with my two sisters. So it was a, again another travel experience that I found very empowering and I still uh, kept a lot of good memories from. So tell us more about Intrepid Travel. Can you describe the business model? Sure. Well, the core of our of what we do is small group adventures. So we, we operate groups of around 10 to 12 customers um, all around the world, seven continents, more than 100 countries. Um, what's specific of these tours is that we want to take our customers um, under the skin of a destination. So, you know, they get immersed with the local communities. They try the local food. They are, the tours are all locally led. We uh, aim to stay locally on the accommodation as much as we can. We um, try to take customers in a country in not only the most visited area, but also the less visited area. So we have a lot of guest house stays, village stay, um, you know, places that like remote areas or places that are a bit less known or not on a, on a guidebooks. So that's um, that's something that um, that we know our customers actually love. We've been uh, in business for 33 years now. It's been you know created by two co-founders who are still owning the company and have uh, been backpacker at their young age around Africa and have, have been thinking at that time that there was no form of travel or group travel that was offering enough adventure 
but also um, uh, some form of structure. Like the, the, the touring um, space or sector was mostly done of the big coach uh, type of, of holidays that wouldn't allow you to go and stay in smaller places, eat in smaller places and, and really uh, leave a bit out as a local. And in the meantime, if you wanted to be a backpacker, you had to be a hardcore backpacker. In the DNA of the company, we wanted to have a form of travel that brings back to the community. You know, if we stay in local places, if we use local guide, um, if we eat the local food, if we try to avoid, uh, obviously, flights within destination, but also pushing to get more tra- public transport to go around the destination of walk. We were creating a form of travel that was better for the um, environment as well as better for the people. At the time of Intrepid was created, our co-founders had in the best first business plan money given to a charity. So their intention at the very beginning was that we wanted to create um, a form of travel that could also support local charities, local NGOs in destinations. Um, and so over the, the few years after the creation of Intrepid, we created the Intrepid Foundation, which aimed to have um, uh, a formal way to help customers who want to support the places that they visit with us uh, to support them through local charities that we donate to. And what was the company's revenue in 2019 before the pandemic? And where are you at now? So from 2013 to 2019, uh, under the leadership of Intrepid, the new CEO, James Thornton at the time, we um, we restructured the company and really put together t- the two things that we thought we were were really critical to, to us and really formed our core, which are growth and purpose. And how do we combine both? How do we make sure that we are a leader in purpose, in travel, and how do we use that to fuel our growth? And that's when we become certified B Corp. And we've seen the more we were investing in purpose, the more we were growing. So in 2019, to go back to your question, we reached half of a billion Australian dollars. Then the pandemic hit, and obviously our revenue has taken a, a big, big hit as well. Uh, we are aiming in 2023 to reach the same level, a bit more actually than what we've done in 2019. Uh, reason why we're, I'm saying a bit more, it's because we also have acquired new businesses during the pandemic, which are generating, uh, in addition to our organic revenue, uh, 2023 will become our biggest year ever. Um, in 2022, November, during a big uh, cyber sell week, we reached our bigger sales days ever. Ever. So we've actually sold six million dollar in one day uh, back in uh, the end of November, uh, which you know is um, is really helping us to to recover from the pandemic and go back on our on our feet. That's amazing. One of your key responsibilities is obviously pursuing growth as a business, as you've described, but also while balancing uh, purpose and profit in the Europe, Middle East, and Africa region. How are you navigating this? Well, I guess this is what really drives me um, in my job the most because I, uh, you know, I've, I've always wanted to work in travel, find a way through even with the finance job. Uh, but then I realized when I started with Intrepid in Morocco that there was this form of travel that I had no idea about. I'd never been on a group tour before, even less small group adventures um, that actually had um, as purpose to to develop communities, to support uh, the economic development of countries. And it was my country in the States, my community. So I was thinking, wow. This is a really great way of doing it. So as soon as I became GM, even before that, but mostly when I became a general manager for Morocco and in Europe, I thought I had a responsibility to your business as a force for good. So having more female guide across Jordan, Egypt, Morocco, Turkey, all those places I was working in. Uh, in Europe, more specifically, as we've been growing Europe, uh, I've been um, driving some partnerships uh, with non-for-profits, for example, um, IUCN, which is the International Union of Conservation of Nature. But we actually created a, a product with them in the center of creating a place that no one know about, where we take customers to live uh, rural life um, 
in one of the national parks in the middle of the, the island, uh, stay in a guest house that's locally owned, eat the local food, listen to music at night, nothing around, only goats, actually. <laughs> we have Bosnia as well, which where we worked with uh, the US aids in the country to support uh, the creation of sustainable tourism, but also help the, the local supply chain in Bosnia with the help of the government to train them. So we actually provided on-ground training in responsible travel best practices, in customer service. So we were the first one in the country, very proud of doing this. Now, sustainability is a word that's become really overused in a way, and in so doing has become quite meaningless in a sense. But what does sustainability mean to intrepid travel? Yeah, I guess it is a very interesting question because where we were born with the idea that, you know, we wanted to create a responsible form of travel. So we never really used the word sustainability. It's about, you know, being responsible as a traveler, responsible as a company. It is about the environment, you know, but it, it is also about the local impact. It is about the, the economic development. It is about um, the reducing inequalities. You know, uh, it is about animal welfare. It is much bigger in a way. Now, sustainability has, as you said, has been used a lot. I have a feeling that it's been used too much to talk about environment and environmental impact and really focus just on that. And I think the risk with this is that while it is very important that every industry and every person in this world does take the climate change emergency as uh, very important as we should, but we should not forget that travel is also a great uh, industry in this world, one of those few industries that are actually very positive for the planet as well, positive for the people, positive because um, it involves uh, a, more, a, a better way to spread money ac across you know, the, the globe, from the wealthiest country to the uh, more in-need countries. Uh, a way, as I said, to reduce inequalities when done well. So all of these things are extremely positive, and I just feel like um, sustainability work has been used too much to just talk about environment, which is very important, but it's not the only part, especially when it comes to travel. Yeah, there's a much more holistic way to talk about the impact of travel. So how is intrepid travel combating over-tourism? So we'll make a, a call that instead of going to Florence, in our best of uh, Italy, for example, we go to Luca. So Luca is a small city, 40k from Florence. You can reach it by train. It's an amazing city within walls where you can go cycling around. Um, it's much cheaper. So food and uh, accommodation get much cheaper, which makes the, the whole trip uh, more affordable in a way. Um, and then you will find that most of the activities and, and accommodation are truly locally owned. So what we would do, for example, is put a, a Luca um, stay in a best of Italy trip instead of Florence, but still give the opportunity to customers to go to Florence if they wish on an optional activity. They can book a train, we help them to book a train, they go and they come back. And that helps to spread, again, as I said, tourism uh, pound more evenly. Uh, we would do this in Croatia and actually I have been in a trip, uh, one of our premium trip in Croatia last summer, um, that goes from um, Split to Dubrovnik through different islands, which is very typical kind of way of visiting Croatia. And it was in the middle of the heat wave, um, July, so overcrowded Croatia, as uh, you know, we've seen in many, uh, many <laughs> uh, headlines and news. Um, but you know what? I, I haven't had this experience at all because when I went there from Split, we took a ferry uh, to Lastovo, which is the most remote island of the country. And in last of all, it's only four and a half hours of ferry. So it's not long, actually. It's okay. Um, and you get there at 400 uh, inhabitants in the island. 
Um, it's a protected area, so it's sort of a national park. So that means the government makes sure that we can't actually uh, send too many people there. It's very monitored in terms of the hotel capacity and all of that. The place I stayed in was not only locally owned, but it was female owned. And the women that I met there that I was really impressed with is a marine cons conservationist. So I was actually learning from her about the work that they were doing in Ireland to protect the marine, which was an incredible experience. Obviously, the food was locally sourced. It was amazing food. And then one of the day tour we've done, uh, it was going on a local fisherman boat to actually try fishing some um, some fish with him and his wife and learn about the issue of overfishing that the Adriatic Sea are, is experiencing and how it's impacting these local people's life and talking about how doing a small half a day tour with us and fishing small amount of fishing in comparison with the biggest one that he would if he was a fisherman full time is actually helping him to earn more money while con uh, preserving the environment. And this experience was incredible for me because I knew about it and still I found it incredible but I could see in the eyes of all the customers who had no idea about you know this and most of them didn't even know Intrepid so they booked through an agent through uh, another company or whatever online or seeing in the press and were in the first time Intrepid trip and actually got completely converted after seeing this sort of experience. Do you think travel editors and the travel industry more broadly should stop talking about bucket list destinations, which are typically, you know, the most famous hotspots such as Venice and Santorini, uh, which of course then contributes to directing more and more people to those same places. How should people kind of talk about and plan their travel? Talking less about bucket list is definitely one very good way. Um, Venice has enough and they had enough. I don't know if you've been there in some of the, the busiest period I have. And, and it's not really pretty to see. It's, um, and we know that local people that we talk with, and they, they have enough of, uh, of this form of tourism. And it's good that the governments are making more and more, taking more and more decisions, tourism taxes and things like that. But um, the power that journalism has to help making changes in, in today's world is incredible. We see it, we saw it as a business, you know, a lot of uh, press started to talk about us as well. And we benefited from that. And I feel like it's, a, in a way, it's a good thing because, you know, as I mentioned, I was in Lastovo, I mean, in Croatia, and one of the girls who uh, joined my trip, she learned about Intrepid on the New York Times articles. You know, otherwise, she would never heard, learn of, of Intrepid. And so I feel like, yes, there is um, a need that we talk more about uh, those places that are less known, less about those bucket list places, but also it's more about a form of travel or of a way of traveling in general as well. So we know there are ways of traveling that could be a bit better than others. Uh, it's also about the number of time that people should be traveling as well. Is it actually good to be traveling every uh, part-time holiday, you know, uh, as it's become the case? It's almost an expectation, as I was saying, from children now that we go overseas because it's become so cheap and so affordable and so easy. Is it a good thing? I don't believe it is. When I was younger, we were not traveling every part-time. Um, we still had a very nice childhood. So I, I feel that, you know, maybe giving travel its importance by making it right, a bit longer, a bit more uh, meaningful um, and, and choose to travel less, but to do it better, for me, is, is the right thing to do. And I think travel journalism can play a, a role in educating the masses on what is it to travel better in general. Um, you know, banning travel, I don't believe is the right thing to do based on carbon uh, effects uh, is, is not a good thing to do. It's employing one in 10 people in this world and it's employing one in three 
new people, new jobs uh, this year specifically. So, you know, it is a great in, uh, industry. I've done a first safari for the first time in my life and it was in Sri Lanka. And, and I learned during that safari that the money that goes into this national park uh, from, you know, people, customers doing safaris was the money that was reinvested to protect the, the animal and the wildlife in, in this um, destination. So, you know, we see the impact. We see the, the direct impact that tourism can have when done well. And what's your strategy with launching trips to emerging destinations, um, maybe places like Saudi Arabia or places that have been uh, too dangerous maybe to travel to because of war? One of the things that we built our product strategy on is that we don't boycott countries based on who's leading them or whatever. Well, obviously, the one most important, the two most important things that will make us decide on whether we want to go and open a new destination or new product are safety. So if we feel that there is a way to create a safe travel experience for our customers, that's really number one. And number two, obviously, it needs to be an intrepid experience. So uh, we'll go to places where there is a way to interact with the locals, learn about the culture, strong history, interesting adventures. Going back to Saudi specifically, we don't have trips that go to Saudi for the moment, but we are exploring um, what could be um, you know, potentially uh, an intrepid um, experience in Saudi. We we know the country is opening to travel. What we're hearing and what we're researching is that it is helping to get women more rights. So we have um, seen a lot of uh, positive movement from women not having to wear the veil uh, since 2018 to some um, holy sites opening up to customers or to people who are not from a Muslim religion, to women making the majority of the workforce. So many of the research we've done have found us that women um, are working heavily in the tourism industry in this country. So we are looking into um, a few things that would make us to help us to make a decision on whether we can create a, a true intrepid experience there. And, and if we do, you'll be the first one to know, Jenny. <laughs> Tell us more about how Intrepid is working uh, closely with indigenous communities around the world. So as an Australian company, we, we always felt that we had a responsibility to do something about the Australian indigenous community. And we are a company that, uh, you know, as I said, want to use travel uh, as a force to reduce inequalities. Uh, so we've always had a reconciliation action plan, or we had it since 2010, and we have re-innovated it recently, which means concretely reviewing the different steps that we are putting in place in our business to make sure that the indigenous community in Australia specifically are uh, supported through our business in different forms, whether it's uh, opening work opportunity within the company, acknowledging them by doing acknowledgement of country in every single meeting that we start, or board meeting, or company update to supporting local charities. But then what really made a difference, I would say, and what we shifted toward during the pandemic was in the creation of um, trips um, that included indigenous experiences. So tours that would actually have as part of uh, the inclusion, indigenous-led um, experiences, um, indigenous uh, or First Nation guides, um, or an indigenous um owned partner, if that makes sense, that will, will take part in the supply chain. So we've created hundreds of them. The majority are in Australia, but very quickly our team in Central America and in Africa have been inspired and uh, we have started to develop with them other uh, indigenous uh, actions and tours in the region. Um, more specifically, we have... Um, Actually, before I say even this, I don't know, it's a statistic that I learned from you, Jenny, but then I've researched it. And uh, I think it's a fascinating one is that 6% of the world's population is made of indigenous people while they protect 80% of the world biodiversity. So, you know, it, it, it's quite of a, 
I think, uh, an interesting and quite shocking almost statistic because protecting indigenous people means literally protecting 80% of the uh, world's biodiversity. So for a company that's into responsible travel, uh, sustainable travel, um, you know, that cares about the environment and impact of travel on the environment, having tools or experiences that are supporting indigenous to become financially independent will help protecting the planet. In terms of more specific experience, we have le leaders who um, who come from First Nations, uh, for example, in Queensland, where we do a course that goes to the Daintree National Park. We learn about native plants uh, from a First Nation guides. We have a trip in Costa Rica that involves uh, interaction with the Terraba community, which is uh, uh, one of the oldest uh, community that has been there for more than 500 years. It's a matriarchal society, which I really like. So women are in charge of uh, passing down the knowledge of the next generation. They are in charge of that community. And, um, and we are uh, doing uh, things as uh, mask making activities, uh, cook a local meal with uh, the locals. Um, you hear, obviously hear the stories. And, and I think that's a very important part as well is just our customers love hearing stories of the communities they visit in general. In the case of indigenous communities, it's quite um, less known. And so it's something that we, we've seen in the feedback coming back. We had a customer in Australia telling us how in one of his own tour in Australia, he has found himself guilty of being racist and that um, going on this trip has opened his mind on the things that he didn't realize he was thinking or doing and really helped him to become a better person. So that's quite transformational in a way. And we are definitely pushing to have more uh, of these experiences. And in Australia, more particularly, we have a goal to have every single trip in Australia, including an indigenous experience uh, or indigenous led experience. Why have indigenous communities been so exploited and overlooked by the tourism industry up until now? Look, I, I would say overlooked, that's for sure. In, exploited, I don't know if, if this is necessarily the case. To be honest, I would really hope not. But exploited by governments, yes, that's different. But I don't think tourism industry has a necessarily a, a intention to exploit indigenous community. I feel uh, that it's been overlooked. Um, I feel it's improving. Hopefully, it will improve. And we've started it. Um, and, and we can see that there are more and more operators that are thinking about following. And I think there's something I've learned, which is around the land, because um, to access funds as a, a First Nation person, if you want to build your own, let's say, hotel, guest house or, or whatever business, you actually need to access finance as anyone. But to access a loan, you actually have, a, have to have a land that you own. And indigenous people, the way that, um, while they still have the land, they are actually collectively owned and they don't... Um, actually have a name or title behind any of their land. So there is a very, very big problem in Australia, specifically where indigenous people and First Nation people can't access money and funding, which is potentially one of the biggest issue uh, driving why um, they can't uh, use tourism and uh, develop businesses in tourism in general, but in tourism more specifically to have access to this industry. And that's something that uh, governments really need to look at um, if, you know, try to change the, the, the laws or try to change the regulation to create. It's all about understanding. That's so key, isn't it? And I'm sure this is a conversation that other travel companies need to be having internally and thinking about how they can forge partnerships with local communities and indigenous communities in the places they operate. I think you've got a lot to teach the rest of the industry and you're really sort of forging the way with this, which is so exciting and positive to see. Now, let's do some blue sky thinking 
what is your most audacious idea? What would you love to help create or achieve one day in the future? I hope no one's going to copy it. No, I'm joking. <laughs> so I think um, something that we've been talking a lot about in, recently in the company, and I've been a big, um, I've been pushing it a lot, and I'm still pushing it, is that we recognize that our biggest assets and our biggest force are our tour leaders. They are the one that, you know, they make or break a trip, and they are the one in the industry that really stand out. We, we know that because we've been investing 33 years in our operating company, which pretty much what they do is support leaders to be as great as they are. So going back to the women, um, the gender equality and women in travel and guiding as a job um, to empower women, a dream that I have is to create a guiding school for women or a guiding school for everyone that is free for women, uh, indigenous and minorities. So others can pay for it. <laughs> but then uh, people that come from this background will have access for free. And the reason why I think uh, we should do that is because not such, no such thing exists. There's no guiding school uh, globally or you know, in any specific country that teach the, the job of leading. I'm talking about tool guiding, tool leading. Um, and uh, the fact that it is a job that is actually very well paid, uh, that is extremely empowering, that can open many doors. We have a lot of example of guides who are now general manager, managing director, COOs of different companies, including our own company. I mean, our first guide is Manch, who was an Intrepid's co-founder. Intrepid CEO was a guide. General manager of Latin America was a guide. I mean, that, we've got many examples internally, but also externally. Um, and I've always been a big believer that if we give this job to women or more women, especially in developing countries like Morocco, Middle East, or some places of Asia, then we'll, we'll have more women accessing leadership positions as well. And why doesn't this exist? Yeah, it's funny. I don't know. I don't know. I just, I just know that we do that. You know, we do it in a way that internally, that's what we do. We train our guide, we educate them. And that's kind of core to our business. We can have any person who's passionate about traveling and try them to become a guide. That's the that's intrepid source. That's how we do it. And that's why there's a lot of them that then, you know, start to work for the companies. They make quite good money because they've got a really good, um, a really good educating background. Now, it doesn't exist anywhere. And I, I would love to pitch the idea to maybe the UNWTO or something like that, but definitely something that should uh, should exist um, that will help uh, creating employment, reducing inequalities. And if it does, then I'll be um, I'll, I'll put intrepid for what to to make it happen somehow. And what would it take to set up an intrepid tour guide school, for example? Yeah, it's just resources, really. It's just uh, some qualified educator trainers. Uh, there's different elements of guiding from, you know, customer service to health and safety to responsible travel to, you know, we've got modules that we already have, by the way, we, we do that already, but it's just kind of bringing resources to create it. It doesn't have to be even physical. It can be virtual. It can be uh, uh, how we call it, like pop-up, like pop-up stores, but pop-up schools, something like a, a pop-up school that you can bring in every country, every destination. I think it's something that we could even sell to destinations or work in partnership with destination. I'm sure some of them will be interested. I feel like what we do has been niche for many, many years. It's just becoming to become a bit more known and we see more destinations interested in working with operators and adventure specialists because uh, they realize the size and especially they realize the growth uh, that we're experiencing being faster than the wider industry. Um, and so potentially that could be a way to to make this sort of project happen, to so get the destinations to help us. Because if you do a school, then you need um, you need a recognition of that sort of diploma or, or certification. And to get that recognition, you need an organization 
such as a global one as UNWTO, for example, uh, destinations to recognize it locally. Then the, the people who become guides through this let's say school can actually use it and formally be able to work because, um, you know, it's, it's very regulated as a job. Uh, you need licenses uh, and if you don't have, you can be stopped by the police. And so there, there needs to be a little bit of regulation around how we can make that happen. So going back to what I was saying at the beginning of this episode, that you actually were lobbying the Moroccan government to provide more tour guide licenses to women. Why was that such a, or is it still a, a problem, particularly in, in Morocco, for, for women to get access to these licenses? Yeah. So in Morocco, when uh, when I was a GM, we had a, you know, we have a, a set of company goals as any company, you know, you, you chase profit and revenue, that's normal for for-profit company, but we also always chase a purpose goal. And that purpose goal can be one year uh, B Corp certification or improvement, uh, or it can be related to your the foundation. And so the year I was a GM, I was made a GM, my purpose goal was to double the number of female guides uh, across the country. And at that time, my team leader, my le- team of two leaders was 100% made of Maine. And I never really questioned why. I never thought, wow, like, is that a problem? So as I started to question and review, I found that, as I said just before, it was a regulation issue on one side. So to become a guide, you needed to um, get a certification from the government that was not issued very frequently. And it was a quick, quite opaque, the whole way it was done. But then the other reason was also cultural barriers, which, you know, we know in countries like Morocco, it's not seen as a, as a job for women, you know, to be traveling around with a group of foreigners um, in the country. But still, I thought that um, the country was developing. You said 75% of the workforce was men. Still 25% is women. And when it comes to guide, it's only 4%. So there was a gap. There was something not quite right. And so as I was investigating, um, we had we have great relationship with the local authorities, tourism authorities that have been talking about it, raised it. Many times we won a few awards locally that uh, I used when we were pitching for, hey, can you help us? So I had a few meetings. And then at some stage, we had the news that the government was organizing a test to issue licenses. And that's where we started on one side, the lobbying effort. Had an Australian ambassador helping me to write a letter. We were part of a, an organization together, which was a non-for-profit sort of business council, which helped as well. So a lot of good, big people of Morocco who helped to kind of say, hey, Intrepid has a case, help them to do business. They need women. So um, eventually we managed to get a group of women interested in the job to apply for the test. We helped them with education, talking about guiding school. We did a, a bit of a training with them and we had a large portion of them um, being um, granted licenses. At some stage, we end up with a team of 16 female in a total of 100. So that was an, an amazing achievement. Then the number went up and down. Uh, more recently, the Minister of Tourism has done organized a new uh, licensing um, test and we are training more women. Um, and I believe that we will reach uh, gender parity very soon in Morocco because now it's becoming a much more known topic. Good luck. That would be an incredible achievement. It sounds like you've made immense progress already with that. So this idea of setting up a tour guide school, which countries do you think would most benefit from from a concept like this? Oh, I mean, to be honest with you, worldwide, post-pandemic, I told you one in three new jobs are created in, in travel. And I, I think a lot of them are in, in the tour guiding areas. Uh, I would say the two jobs that are the, the biggest uh, ones we're struggling with are tour leaders and, and sales, uh, sales staff. So people either sell the tour or, or operate the tour for us on the ground. So I feel like it could be anywhere. I've just returned from Iceland. I was there last week. 
And uh, I met with our incredible team of leaders. They're, they're amazing, but there are not many of them. And we are not, we're turning down business in Iceland because we don't have enough leaders. So, you know, it's, it's pretty much everywhere. I feel like the women uh, or indigenous slash minority element of the guiding school, so to make it free for, for people who are more disadvantaged, will work more in developing country, obviously, places like the Middle East, Morocco, some part of Southeast Asia, um, you know, some part of Eastern Europe to some extent. But I would say, and obviously Latin America, Central America, but then the, the wider issue around this job becoming a, a job that um, is more and more demanded, there is more growth coming from this part of the, the industry, but not enough um, um, uh, people to work in it is, is, um, is a great opportunity. And so I feel like it could be anywhere, really. It's, it's a global issue. I'm in Italy at the moment. Try to find a guy. Try to find a place to, to stay in Italy in summer. I mean, good luck. It's very, very crowded. So there's a lot of places in developed country where we are struggling with tourism workforce and guides are the front line. So definitely. Um, and what happens in this is that the ones that exist have become much more expensive. They ask for much more money. I mean, good on them, but it's, it's difficult in a way to operate a business because uh, you don't have enough, uh, to like enough supply. And so because it's such a great job, it's one that it's a first step into the travel industry for many people. It can help you to grow your career in it. It can help reduce uh, gender equality at, at a higher level. Um, it is one that needs to be looked after, I think, with the global, uh, on the global uh, level, if that makes sense. So how does Intrepid come up with new ideas for trips and, and destinations? And how do you identify trends before other companies do? Because you seem like a very innovative company. What we think is our current uh, uh, biggest competitive advantage is that as soon as we started the company, we very, very quickly realized that if we want to deliver on our promise to, you know, to be the most responsible travel, uh, to offer local and immersive experiences and all of that, we needed to implement in the countries where we operate. And that's not the model that two operators are following. Two operators would usually traditionally contract third party, local DMCs, local agencies in different countries. We don't do that. What we do is, for example, we go to Vietnam, it was our one of the first and fastest growing destination. A few years later, we have an office in Vietnam. And that office is led by a local Vietnamese general manager with the local Vietnamese team that manage the local leaders as well, the local supply chain and all of that. And that's how we can make sure that we've got that impact locally. And so coming back to your uh, question about innovation, this setup helps us to see what's on the ground, what could be interesting, what is working, what's not. And it really helps us to, to come up with, with new ideas constantly. Because we, we, we're a large company now, we're becoming larger and larger, uh, but we're still very entrepreneurial in our minds. We want everyone to be able to come and bring an idea on the table. We can talk to Intrepid CEO or, or um, co-founders without any issue. We can email them if we want, no matter which job you are in. Um, and some of the best product idea for the company was pitched by employees. So, for example, we launched the Family Adventure Ranch a few years ago. That was an extremely successful one. It was done by a mom, a solo mom, by the way. So a mom who actually told, and she made a call on making it solo, accessible to solo parents. And we have, as part of the ranch, some of the tours that are for solo parents. Um, and she made a call on, you know, there's nothing for people like me. This is what I think I would love on a holiday. Here is the pitch. This is how much money we can make out of it. What do you think? And it went ahead and we had the same experience with the women expedition. It was an idea that we were talking about here in, in Morocco, myself with my team and some uh, people around the region. And that's how we brought the idea to create a women expedition, which initially was one tour, three destination every year. And then it become a, 
a range of, you know, close to 10 destinations. We, we just launched Turkey, by the way. So we've got Turkey now added to the list. We've got um, uh, Kenya, Peru, India, Morocco, Jordan, Iran, and, you know, and so on. So um, it really, I think that combination between having that local presence with teams on the ground that look, that look after what's going on, what's new, what we can do, how to innovate, but then also the entrepreneurial way of operating where we can um, bring idea. We know that purpose is at the core. So if it's purpose related, if it's something that do good can sell, then we can bring it and, and pitch it and, and we make it happen if it, if it does go through. What will adventure travel look like in, say, 2040? Well, I hope it will be uh, more mainstream. Adventure doesn't mean hardcore. It's adventure for all ages, all levels. So there's a bit of a misconception uh, that adventure is just about trekking, hiking, cycling. It is not. Some of the best-selling tours in, in, for Intrepid worldwide that are the tours that, you know, uh, stay in rural areas, uh, where most of the activities are around uh, uh, interacting with the locals, you know, eating some local food. It's also more experiential and more about uh, what you try, the moments uh, that you collect that rather than the things. And where do most of your customers come from at the moment? Are they UK, Australia? It's uh, So Australia has been since the beginning, the number one market for Intrepid. It's been slowing down during the pandemic and we've been over-investing in our, the Northern Hemisphere market, so the US, Canada, the UK and European markets. So right now we've got a bit more of an even split between the three and we think we're going to get into a 30, 30, 30% more or less. Uh, so each of the, the Intrepid tours that you, you go on, you will have uh, a bit of each. Now, those are the major markets. What I'm really fascinated about is because we're an online company as well, we are, um, you know, attracting people from France, from Singapore, from uh, India. The other day I was seeing Indian customers on our tours and I've seen more and more of them. And, you know, they're an English speaking market. They are the fastest outbound market, the, the biggest one now, now, I believe. Um, so it will be interesting to see how we can attract more people from more places uh, to those traditional Western countries. Because uh, I think that's what makes also Intrepid uh, trips very rich. It's because they bring people from all different parts of the world together in a destination. And where do you see Intrepid travel, you know, as a company in, in 20 years time? What's your vision for it? So it's something we're talking about a lot at the moment as we're building our long-term strategy. And one of the things we realize is that people go on an Intrepid trip every two and a half years. So the same customer interact with us every two and a half years. So, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's an experience that you don't do every part-term holiday. It's, it's a big trip. It, it needs a budget. It's, it's, um, it's one that you want to plan. It's often a longer haul or, or you know, quite, um, you know, big, big adventure. So we, we interact only two and a half uh, years with our customers every two and a half years. And we are looking into how do we create more touch points and launching more uh, ways or intrepid sort of products. So, there are more and more people that interact with us and our style of travel and our concepts. So, for example, um, launching Intrepid books. We've just launched an Intrepid magazine called Good Times. Uh, we are thinking about Intrepid podcasts, potentially, to have more people hearing about Intrepid stories from the ground. Let's say, uh, you know, a tour guide, a, a local person that um, delivers an experience on the ground that could actually share, um, you know, very interesting things that customers could, while they don't travel, could still get inspired from. So we're thinking about many, many other touch points that could be 
could add value on, you know, and, and really be um, able to create connection with our community. So Intrepid could become more of a media company in addition to being a travel company in the future. <laughs> Potentially. Potentially. Yeah. Well, we're trying a lot of things. As I said, we're very entrepreneurial. So we try and see what works and if, uh, if it fits and if it's, um, if, if it's good, why not? And how important do you think it is to have a long-term view of travel and business? Well, it is very important. And, um, f you know, uh, going back to the sustainability question and, and all of that, we have added now in at the board level in our audit and risk committee, which is quite a boring thing, but it's something that big companies do every now and then and review the, the biggest risk that can impact our business as a travel company. And for the first time since September, we have now climate change listed in the top of that list uh, because it is affecting us operationally, literally. Because as I said, we, we take people to destinations, to places that are impacted potentially by the effect of climate change. And we've seen um, many um, issues operationally due to floods, for example, in the US that affected national parks that we couldn't actually travel to. So we had to cancel trips, for example, or heat waves in Europe that caused that we couldn't go um, to the same places we were going to go, or we had to uh, deal with more customers feeling affected by the heat. That makes us realize uh, how important it is to have a long-term vision and really understand the longer-term impact of climate change. Um, you know. Um, above just what we can control. We can uh, reduce our emissions, but then we don't control the fact that customers have to fly to join one of our trip. And we don't control many things that other companies are doing, obviously. So using this um, experience that we have to share more, advocate, uh, help the industry to become better. We've been extremely open in everything we do, good or bad, so others can potentially also learn. We've issued the decarbonization toolkit during the pandemic to use to help others to at least have a place to start because we started somewhere. We're still not perfect, but we started somewhere. And that's how we see our longer term commitment um, to make uh, travel a better industry. Um, so hopefully, you know, if more and more uh, get engaged with the with this movement, we will hopefully we will still have a planet we can visit by then. But we, we don't know right now. That's the point, isn't it? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we need to protect it. It's yeah. our number one asset. And just to conclude, um, any advice for other travel companies and travel professionals listening with regard to carbon offsetting? Because I think there's a lot of mistrust and misunderstanding around uh, carbon offsetting. But this is obviously uh, something that you've, you know a lot about and has been a way that you've managed to achieve uh, carbon neutrality. Sure. Yeah. And it's changing on a daily basis. So regulation has become much more um, uh, rigorous in a way, which I believe is a good thing. Now, having said that, back in 2010, we, we achieved carbon neutrality by offsetting, which meant starting the project in 2005 that involved reviewing, uh, measuring our carbon emission, because we, we keep saying this. You don't know what you can't, what you don't measure. So, so you can't offset, you can't reduce what you don't measure. So the process starts at measuring and understanding our impact. And back in 2005, we went through this big job of reviewing every single tour, every single inclusion, everything that really we do, every office that we run globally, and then look at how much we emit. From there, looked at where can we uh, reduce and avoid. And so that was the second part of the process. And then what's left then get offset. And the offset is then um, a process of purchasing carbon uh, certificates or carbon, uh, they call it like this, 
from gold and gold standards. We have actually an environmental specialist that work in the company with a purpose team that look into where are those uh, carbon offset needs to be bought. So we know that they injected or invested in projects that remove uh, carbon from the air or um, also support local communities in destinations. So we will go on purpose to a project in Turkey, for example, that implements wind farm, but in the meantime, will actually support local employment. So just to make sure that these offsets are invested properly. This was good in 2010. It's not longer enough for the for the uh, the future of the planet. It's been clearly um, confirmed uh, by scientists, um, and we want to move away from carbon offsetting. This is our intention. This is why we went into uh, submitting to the to an initiative called Science Based Target Initiative. Um, our plans to decarbonize our business in line with the 1.5 degrees um, uh, agreed at the Paris Agreement. Um, and those plans have been approved and verified. And what we're doing now is working through this plan. And it, it, it is things of, uh, around uh, removing flights from our trips, uh, whatever possible, removing, because, you know, without thinking about the flight that you need to get on the trip, we still have flights included on some of our trips. And we found out one of our best selling trips worldwide is a trip in Vietnam where the routes cannot just be done without taking a flight, the route between two cities. And so how do we remove that flight replaced by a train, replaced by a slow boat? And we've done this exercise to remove the flights from the top 50 trips, as well as looking into other ways, reducing, removing our uh, offices into renewable energy. The UK one is 100% done, for example. So we had some wins like this, and we're working through the plans uh, to get there. So... Um, we are, where we are now, really, that we are finding really challenging is the regulation is changing very fast, faster. And um, the regulation is not going to take this anymore. They will not take offsetting anymore. I think you've seen it. The ASA has announced that uh, carbon offsetting cannot be claimed anymore unless if you can prove the impact, which we're not sure about what they mean by impact. So we've got the team investigating all of these things. And to be honest with you, I think it's a good thing. If they're becoming more rigorous, it will be applicable for everyone. Mills, we will have to be more rigorous and everyone else will have to. Um, they won't accept claims. And the consequence of that is that businesses will start to be taxed. They will start to get um, financial impact. And it's as sad as it might sound, if it's the way to make things move faster, maybe it is a good way then. Uh, but it is a, a, something that's moving very fast at the moment. Thank you, Zina. That's extremely helpful. And I feel there's so much that people can learn from what Intrepid Travel is doing and how it's experimenting and how it's innovating to solve some of these huge challenges that the travel and tourism industry is facing. But before we go, I want to share three key takeaways with our listeners. Number one, environmental sustainability is vital to the future of tourism, but so is the economic uplift it gives to people all over the world. Number two, indigenous people make up just 6% of the Earth's global population, but they protect 80% of the planet's biodiversity. So protecting and empowering these people is essential. And number three, we need to make a conscious shift to decarbonisation rather than relying on carbon offsetting to lower our carbon footprint. Thank you so much. Thank Zina. you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Blue Sky Thinking with Jenny Southern. Before you go, I want to give you a special discount code for our Premium Vault newsletter, which explores emerging travel trends on a weekly basis. Some of the trends we have explored in recent months include survival scenarios, new age wellness and wilderness over tourism. 
And what's great is that as an annual subscriber, you get access to all this content in our trend library. So if you would like 50% off an annual Vault subscription, use discount code BLUESKYTHINKINGALPHA, as one word, during checkout. Just visit globetrender.com vault to get signed up. If you enjoyed this episode, please do rate, review and subscribe to Blue Sky Thinking so it's stored in your podcast library, making future episodes easily discoverable. Thank you again for listening. Until next time, keep your head in the clouds and embrace the power of blue sky thinking.